Turn with me now to Mark chapter 13 as we continue our series of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 13. Now friends, brothers and sisters, some uh, passages in the Bible are like driving a Tesla down the autobahn. It's nice and smooth. And other passages in the Bible are more like going off-roading in a Jeep. And this uh, chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel is definitely more like the latter, going off-roading in a Jeep. So as we come to Mark chapter 13, buckle up. Here we go. Let's hear God's word. And as he, uh, of course Jesus, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are about the beginning of the birth pains. But... Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, Here is the Christ. So look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see uh, these things uh, taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things 
take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I was interested to discover that uh, the last time I preached through Mark's gospel, I finished preaching in chapter 12. Obviously, we need to look at uh, these uh, parts of the Bible and understand what they're saying. But as we do that, it is important that we establish, first of all, a principle, a principle of theological uh, and church life. There are primary matters. Primary matters are usually defined as matters of salvific importance, that if you believe, you will be saved, and if you do not believe, you will not be saved. But not everything that uh, the Bible teaches is a matter of primary significance. Uh, There are also secondary matters, matters uh, usually defined as uh, of, yes, doctrine, and yes, doctrinally significant, But not salvific. Matters about which Christians disagree. And uh, that we develop our own conscience uh, regarding, uh, formed by the Bible's teaching. Uh, And are significant, but are not salvific. Um, Matters of baptism. Infant baptism. Believer's baptism. Many different opinions on this that that people have developed. Godly people, well-informed people, uh, 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 renowned preachers of the Bible have had different views on this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, was uh, someone who believed in infant baptism. Uh, Though uh, in his uh, notes on this, uh, lengthy notes on this, at the end of it, he says these things about baptism be doubtful, which indicates that his mind is a secondary issue. But, of course, Edwards was someone who believed in infant baptism. Charles Spurgeon, another great Christian leader of the past, of course, believed in believer's baptism. They're both in heaven, Edwards and Spurgeon together. And they've discovered that Spurgeon is right. I joke, of course, because Edwards is a great, I can get, a, you know, Edwards was one of my great heroes, and many, though he certainly was not without error in his teachings. And then there are, of course, tertiary matters, primary, secondary, tertiary matters of third significance. Uh, Those would be uh, not doctrinal matters, but strategic matters. Do we do a church plant in Atlanta, or do we go here and do this? Do we do that and the other? Churches have to make decisions about those kind of things. 
but they're matters of tertiary significance. And, and so we unite around the primary matters, and we have differences of conscience in the same fellowship around secondary matters, and we have to make decisions about tertiary matters, but we don't divide on secondary, and much less tertiary issues. And of course, end times teaching fits squarely within secondary matters. It's a doctrinal issue. It's a doctrinal issue of significance. It's not salvific. It's matters around which many godly Christians and great Christian leaders have had differences of opinion. Uh, Actually, if uh, if you'd heard me preach on this passage um, 20 years or so ago, I would have preached it differently than I I'm going to preach it now. And that's because a lot of understanding what Jesus is saying here requires a familiarity with Old Testament prophetic imagery. Well, that just takes time to get used to. I'm pretty sure I'm right now in what I'm going to preach. I suppose it's possible that you heard me preach it again in 20 years. I would change my mind again. Possible, I think unlikely. It's a matter of secondary significance where you need a well-formed um, biblical um, uh, conscience. But it's not primary. And we unite together. And there'll be differences of opinion on, on, on these end time things among us, of course. Always have been. Shouldn't disturb us. Shouldn't surprise us even. That said, it is of significance if if you uh, if you think of a cell phone with a uh, with a screen cover on it and the screen cover is all dirty and cracked it's it's harder to see through and because of the massive amounts of confusion there is in the church about the church at large about eschatology we, we, people are very confused about all sorts of other things And so we need to do our best job we can to clean up the surface so we can see accurately or clean up the glasses so we can look through them clearly. In fact, that image of of seeing is part of what's going on. So I'm going to give you two handholds here. There's a a lot of details. We don't have time to get into all of it. And remember this this series of the Gospel of Jesus from Mark's Gospel. We're looking at the big picture and we're going to go through this whole section somewhat fast, though I hope not superficially. But I'm going to give you two handholds that will structure the message and structure the passage. And the one is an image of seeing. It's watch, which is repeated over and over again for the first time part of the passage which runs from verses 1 to 31 Jesus says over and over again it's translated in different ways in our Bibles but he says over and over again watch watch out Um, it says sometimes says be on your guard or see that you don't do this watch and then uh, the other handhold as we go through this rough terrain in our jeep off cross country uh, is wake and the end of the, uh, uh, from verse 32 to 37, Jesus primarily switches the, the exhortation he's giving to us, which is now primarily not watch, but wake, not, not, not woke, wake, W-A-K-E, right? So uh, verses 1 to 31, watch, and then verse 32 to the end, wake. Okay, so first of all, watch, verses 1. To 31. And Jesus, as I say, repeats that exhortation actually five times here. So, uh, and it's translated in different ways. Verse 2, do you see or watch these great buildings? 
Or, and then verse, uh, verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Watch out. Um, or verse 9, be on your guard. Uh, translating the same uh, word in a different way, watch out. Uh, or again, verse 23, be, but be on guard. Again, watch. And actually, he says that one more time as he transitions uh, what I believe in my interpretation of this passage is a different time that he's talking about from verse 32 in the end. He says again, verse 33, be on guard. But then he switches, as we'll see in a moment, to awake and repeats that in that section. So first of all, he's saying watch. But of course, the question is watch out for what? And I won't go through, we don't have time to go through it all. But I want, what I want to give you um, to help you is uh, five interpretive keys that, that, that I think will help you understand what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the first interpretive key is contextual. Always important when you're studying the Bible. What's the context? So verses 1 to 3, we're told. It says here, he came out of the temple. Well, Jesus has been in the temple in Mark's gospel all the way from uh, Mark chapter 11. And now he leaves the temple, never to go back. It's a big deal contextually. Uh, what is more, we're told very specifically, uh, verse 3, that as he leaves, he sits on the Mount of Olives, which would be leaving uh, by the east gate and then going east, opposite the temple. Now that's significant because, in my view, Jesus is almost certainly fulfilling a prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel. Remember I said, this prophetic language here that helps you understand. He, he, and you can look at it afterwards, chapter 10 and, and, and chapter 11. Ezekiel tells in his prophecy how the glory of the Lord will leave the temple and then reside on a mountain to the east. Which is exactly what Jesus does. The glory of the Lord, Jesus, God incarnate, leaves the temple and goes on the mountain. It's the first interpretive key that show you this is the first section is all about the destruction of the temple. Uh, the second interpretive key is uh, not uh, contextual. But structural, again, that's often very important to interpret the Bible, the structure of it. And what I want you to notice here is the switch in the way Jesus talks about day or days. From verses 1 to 30, 31, he says a number of times, in those days. And then from verse 32 to the end, he switches to that day. It's a different time he's talking about, I believe. So uh, verse uh, 19, he says, for in those days... Uh, and um, then verse 24, he says, but in those days, and now verse 32, but concerning that day. And as we'll see, he's talking about a different time. So we have, context, I'm giving you these five interpretive keys to help you understand this first section, which primary exhortation to watch. And the first is uh, contextual about him leaving the temple. The glory of the Lord, according to Ezekiel, has left the temple. God's glory is gone. And then we got this um, structural key. In those days, 
then later in that day. Uh, but then we also have symbolic. So this is the fig tree. Uh, verse 28, Jesus says this, from the fig tree learn its lesson, or literally learn its parable. Now that's, this is of course hugely significant because you may remember when we were looking at chapter 11, when Jesus cleansed the temple famously, he cleansed the, table, the, the temple, uh, but he wrapped around it this, this symbol of the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 15, and on, he cleanses the temple. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 12, he curses the fig tree, and then you come back again to the fig tree, verse 21, and, and, and what Jesus is saying is by cursing the fig tree, he's saying he's cleansing the temple and, 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 and symbolizing judgment upon the temple by this fig tree. Well, now comes the fig tree again. Of course, that's important symbol, symbolically. What he's, what he's saying is learn the lesson from the parable of the fig tree. That temple is going to go and there'll be a whole new thing happening. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, uh, that's symbolic. But then, and uh, as I say, this takes most, kind of, it, 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 most sort of familiarity with Old Testament prophetic literature. Uh, you have this prophetic imagery. And I won't have time to get into all of it, but I want to give you some of it. So uh, this, is, uh, this will be the next interpretive key, the prophetic Old Testament imagery. For instance, famously, verse 14, uh, when you see the abomination, the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, and the, this amazing thing that Mark puts there, let the reader understand, which uh, is, is, I think, not only saying this is a difficult thing to understand, he's also pointing the reader to this being a fulfillment of something that he should read, namely, uh, of course, uh, Daniel's prophecy, particularly Daniel chapter 12, um, but also elsewhere in Daniel, of this abomination of desolation who will go to the temple. What is the abomination of desolation? Uh, Some people uh, would say uh, that it refers to something that happened in 167 B.C. when uh, the ruler a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, that's what he's known as history to, uh, by, that's his Antiochus Epiphanes, um, who was one of the Greek rulers of the Hellenistic Empire, which dominated Israel at the time. Uh, he declared that the offerings in the temple should cease, stop, and in addition, he built over the, uh, the altar for the burnt offering an altar for Zeus, the pagan god. You can read about this in the, the Jewish book, uh, First Maccabees. Of course, that was an abomination, and it was awful. Uh, but it cannot be what Jesus is referring to, because it happened over 200 years before he's speaking. So when what is he uh, talking about? Uh, and there are different opinions, of course. But in my opinion, uh, he's referring to a description that we know about from a historian called Josephus, Uh, Something happened in A.D. 67 or 68 when the zealots, this this was this group of um, political, militaristic, uh, radical activists at the time. The zealots took over the temple and installed a mock high priest and conducted um, sacrilegious pseudo-sacrifices. To such shock and shame to the pious Jews at the time, there was actual fighting in the temple and bodies killed in the temple. And 
It was an abomination that caused desolation. It caused desolation because, of course, after that in AD 70, the, the temple was destroyed and the, 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 the Romans uh, sacked Israel and the, the, there, was, there was suffering. You read Josephus about this if you really want to stay up late at night. There was suffering on a scale hard to believe. And yet the Christians, those who follow Jesus, we know about this from Eusebius, 4th century Christian historian, We are told by him, they, because of a prophecy, and I think that means Jesus' teaching about the prophecy of Daniel being fulfilled at this moment, because of a prophecy, when that took place in AD 67-68, they fled from Jerusalem and went to a place called Pella and survived when the, the others were desolated. So I think Jesus is there talking about the destruction of the temple. And there's more of this sort of a prophetic language. The most difficult part of it is verses 24 to 27 that appears to be talking about in sort of cosmic terms about the ending of the universe. But actually, when you get familiar with Old Testament imagery, you understand the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about by the destruction of the temple and the new age that's about to begin. So uh, verse um, 24 when he talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, is almost certainly a reflection of Isaiah 13 and verse 10, where the prophet Isaiah is actually teaching about the destruction of Babylon. And he says, Isaiah 13 verse 10, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. This is cosmic language about a massive political change. Um, Similarly with uh, uh, verse 25 where Jesus says, the stars will be falling from heaven. Almost certainly that's a reflection of Isaiah 34 and verse uh, 4 where Isaiah is talking about the judgment on Edom, another uh, country at the time. And he says there about that judgment on Edom, all the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall. Um, Again, talking about a massive political change using cosmic language. Of course, we, I mean, as I said at the beginning, 20 years or so ago, I would have view these things differently but the more you read Old Testament prophetic imagery the more obvious it is what Jesus is saying this cosmic language for a massive change that's about to take place the temple will be destroyed a new age is coming where the gospel will be preached to the Gentiles that is to the nations and it's we we speak in these sort of terms um, these days too we talk about something being earth shattering earth-shattering change I think is what Jesus is saying there Um, somewhat similarly with verses 26 and 27 that of course are fulfillment of uh, the book of Daniel again Daniel then chapter 7 the famous words about uh, the the son of uh, the son of man uh, where it says Daniel 7 verse 13 um, behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented 
before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The kingdom of Jesus is now going to all nations. And that, I think, is what this uh, Old Testament prophetic language uh, that Jesus is talking about means. Uh, Then verse 27, when Jesus says, they'll send out the angels and gather his elect from uh, the furthest corners of of the earth. The angels there is either the supernatural angelic power that goes with the missionary endeavor to take the gospel to all nations. Or, because, of course, the word angel literally means messenger, Jesus is actually talking about missionaries going to all nations. But in either case, to me at least, uh, it seems uh, the more I read Old Testament prophetic literature, the more obvious it is that Jesus is using this cosmic language for the earth-shattering event of the temple being destroyed and the gospel going to all nations. Well, the final interpretive key is in verse 30, which is uh, what Jesus says about this generation. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place, which was literally fulfilled. That generation did not pass away until the gospel went to the nations in those last days. Of course, the Apostle Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that when the Spirit comes, it's fulfillment of the prophet Joel that we are now in the last days. And therefore Jesus says, because of this destruction of the temple and the glory of the Lord leaving the, t- leaving the temple, and now the gospel is going to go to the nations, watch. Uh, watch for danger, because now you're no longer a part of the uh, uh, Israel state with your own army. You, my people, are now scattered through the nations. And therefore, there is uh, unique trouble that can come your way. Watch out. But also watch for opportunity, because you now, my people, are scattered through the nations. The gospel is going to all nations. And his kingdom, he has been enthroned on high as the king of this kingdom. And now there's unique gospel opportunity. Watch for that opportunity. So that's what I uh, believe verses 1 to 31 uh, is teaching us. Now, rather more briefly, uh, verses 32 to 37, that day, which is Jesus' return. And what he says about Jesus' return uh, is uh, uh, about his own return is the exhortation now switches from watch to wake. Look how he repeats it. Verse 33, be on guard or watch, which is the primary emphasis of the previous section. Now it shifts to keep awake. Uh, Again, verse 34, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Wake. Why? Why? Because, as he emphasizes, that day when he returns, no one knows, verse 32. Again, verse 33, you do not know. 
And then again, verse 35, you do not know. No one knows when Jesus will return. So if someone comes to you and says, I know when Jesus will return because of this, that, and the other prophetic literature, you can point them right to this passage and say, from the lips of Jesus himself, no one knows. No one. And, and to underscore it, of course, most amazingly, he says, uh, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What on earth can Jesus mean by that? How is it possible that the Son, fully God, and therefore omniscient, knowing everything, does not know? Uh, in his preaching here, the reason why it's brought in is to underscore the importance of the fact that no one knows and therefore we are to be wake, uh, to wake, to be alert, to wake up and to stay awake. Uh, but, but though that's obviously the rhetorical purpose of it, it still must mean something substantially. What, what does he mean by saying the son does not know? Um. What Jesus is uh, teaching here relates to a Christian doctrine and sort of big theological jargon word alert coming. Um, what's known to theologians as the hypostatic union, or uh, I, I prefer that the ancients also described it uh, in a way that I think is I, I slightly prefer using, which is the grace of union. What that means is we Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We believe that he has uh, two natures, fully God and fully man, two natures, but one person. So he's whole, one person, and yet two natures. It's a tricky thing to get your mind around. Uh, J.I. Packer, one of the great theologians of, uh, of the 20th century, uh, would say that all heresy comes from the unwillingness to let mystery be mystery and try to make it logic. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures, and yet one person uh, the uh, Chalcedonian Creed attempts to try and define that by, by talking about these two natures as, as indivisible, inseparable, unconfusedly, and yet one union. And the reason why we believe that is because the Bible will, on occasion, like here, talk about something that can only be true of one of those natures, God or man, as true of the whole, because he's one person. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says that God gave his blood for the church. Well, God cannot bleed. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have blood. He's a spirit. It can only be true of his human nature that Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross. And yet, because it's two natures of one person, Paul speaks of that as true of the whole. 
Or he says uh, the same thing in uh, his letters, the first letter to the Corinthians, where he says the, uh, they crucified the Lord of glory. Well, they, you can't crucify the Lord of glory if, you, if you're meaning his divine nature. God cannot be crucified. He, he's eternal. He cannot die. And yet, because we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, Paul talks of what can only be, in a literal sense, true of his human nature as true of the whole, one person, because he's also one person. Uh, of course, you get the same in, famously in Luke chapter 2 when it says that Jesus uh, grew in wisdom and stature. Well, God cannot grow, either physically or mentally. But what is true of, of the human nature can be said to be true of the one person. Clearly, it's when we're talking about uh, the. I had a friend once who was when I was doing my doctorate work at Cambridge. I had a friend who was also doing a PhD, and he was thinking about doing a PhD on the Trinity. And we had another older friend at the time who made sure he uh, got coffee with this friend of mine who was doing the Trinity and advised him not to, because when it comes to the, the the nature of God, whether we're talking about the Trinity or here the incarnation. We verge on things that by definition, when we speak of them, we're using human language to attempt to describe something that must be by definition beyond human language. So all you can really do is try to say something that isn't wrong. Well, that's what the Chalcedonian Creed was doing, unconfusedly, indivisibly, and yet one. I mean, it, doesn't solve the problem. It just uses language that you can, we can employ. Because ultimately God is God and we worship him. And so where Jesus here speaks about nor the son, of course, in a literal sense, he's talking about the human nature. But it doesn't quite, he's still one. Um, I'll give you an illustration. All illustrations, either about the Trinity or the Incarnation, fail because, again, you're using human language and an illustration cannot be perfect. But it's an illustration that you might find helpful. Uh, I have. Uh, imagine, if you will, the, uh, an, an ambassador, an ambassador of the United States government, and he's been sent to some other country, pick whatever country you like, let's call it Bulgaria. So here's the United States ambassador to Bulgaria. As, uh, let's call his name John. Uh, John, of course, because he's the ambassador, and is, is aware of all sorts of secrets of the United States government. And yet, in, as an ambassador to Bulgaria, he is not um, going to declare all those secrets. And so you can imagine, again, all illustrations fail at some level about the nature of God because we're using human language, but it's a somewhat helpful illustration. You, you, you can imagine that John, the ambassador, would know something that is a secret of the, of the United States government, but when asked in Bulgaria, could quite legitimately say, because in his role as ambassador, he's not allowed to talk about it, he could say, the ambassador does not know. Because he doesn't, as ambassador. Uh, it's not a perfect illustration, but it's something at least to hold on to. But of course, the point of what Jesus is saying here is in the first section, watch, because we live in this age of unique gospel opportunity, but also trouble, 
and then also wake. Because in this age in which we live, Jesus can return at any moment before the end of this worship service, before I finish this sentence. No one knows. The master of the house may come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, that's very early in the morning, or in the morning, later in the morning. Therefore, wake. So having said these eschatological matters are matters that, that, that are secondary importance, and they are. And we should be, have fellowship even though we'll have different opinions on some of these things. That's to be expected and utterly normal. Having said that, confusion about them. Is it, is it by happenstance that one way of describing the contemporary church at large would be to say that we are characterized by lack of discernment and drowsiness? And here Jesus is saying, based upon his teaching about the last days, watch and wake. So it is a significant doctrinal teaching, if for sure, secondary. Let me uh, close with uh, an illustra- uh, a final illustration. Um, when I was at high school, uh, the way British high schools functioned in those days was that at the end of the, the time you were at high school, there was a final exam. I think nowadays they have a lot more sort of... Um, grading along the way but when I was at high school the final exam was it whatever grade you got in the final exam is what grade you got that was it and so obviously when it comes to the last uh, semester or the last term as it's called in England um, you, 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 you know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of weight that you're carrying because this exam will determine what grade you get and how you do and where you go to college and what you do so there's a lot of that and And different teachers at the time employed different techniques to try and get people to watch and wake, to to really be alert and to not be drowsy, to make the most of what little time they had left. And there are all sorts of different techniques that the teachers tried. The one who was every year most successful employed what we thought was a highly idiosyncratic, strange, unusual technique. And he, he made us promise never to tell it to the, the other the class that was coming bef- behind us the year below um, because he wanted it to be a surprise to them too after he told it to us. And I think I can now describe it to you because he, I'm sure he's long retired. I don't think he cares anymore. What he would do was, so we, we turn up in this last semester with the exam coming down the track. And in this last, and, 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 and we first class, he would say this. Our next class is next week. I may show up or I may not. But if I do show up and none of you are here, I won't show up ever again. We showed up. And he always got us, his group always worked harder than any other. Because we had to wake up. Because we didn't know. And we watched. And we were awake. 
Well, that's the best I can do with Mark chapter 13. And God willing, I won't preach it again for another 20 years. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching here. Help us to be faithful to it and indeed help us to watch and wake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.